I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. So today, Daniel, we are back talking about the climate with the most thorough exploration of what that means in terms of the ocean and the cryosphere, both of which we'll talk about in just a moment, by reading and discussing the latest IPCC SROCC report. That's a lot of letters. Yes. Climate change is a force of nature, David, that has been disrupting and threatens to disrupt even further human civilization. And for a long time, you know, the people have been saying climate change, climate change, and the scientists have been saying climate change, climate change, but the corporations and the politicians have been saying no. But then here we have (laughs) the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, something like that. (laughs) A bunch of countries and a bunch of scientists from around the world come together every so often to review every single scientific paper ever published as it relates to climate change, and they they release these massive reports. And for the past few years, they've been releasing report after report saying, this is a major issue. We're going to hit 1.5C degrees, and that's a problem. Oh, we're going to hit 2 degrees, and that's a problem. Oh, the land is being destroyed. That's a problem. And That's a deal breaker. That's a deal. Uh, the land is not looking good. That's a deal breaker. Um, and we've reviewed a couple of these reports already. Episode 50, Apocalypse Now. That's the 1.5 degrees Celsius report. Uh, we looked at another report in episode 88. This land is our land on land. And we're back to review another report. This one, uh, what's it called? Special report on something? Yes, this is the SROCC, which stands for the Special Report on the Ocean and Cryosphere in a Changing Climate, which I think actually should be the SROCCC, but that was probably just too many letters. All the scientists in one room. But when it comes to acronyms, well. Yeah, that's actually exactly how they did it, Daniel. They got every scientist in the world to sit in in one room and they, they were all spending hours a day working on these acronyms. Um, But there are oversights. And that extra C was an oversight, just like this paper is filled with oversights. Um, If you want to read this before you get started on this episode, uh, you can do so. We have links on the website. And and there are two main versions that most people will read. Uh, There is the policymaker summary and the technical summary. And then there are breakouts with more details on each different section of areas around the world. For example, the ice, highlands, the ocean. Uh, You can dig into those, but honestly, you probably just want to dig into the summaries. And we're going to talk about the differences between these papers and how that's interesting uh, later on in this episode. But uh, maybe we should just start by explaining exactly what the hell the ocean and the cryosphere is, what that entails, all those those nice details. I know what a cryo tank is, David. What's a cryo tank, Daniel? So I haven't done it yet, but. Uh, it's where you pay 60 to 100 bucks to get into a chamber uh, that blasts you with something like negative 20 degrees or something like that for three minutes. And it's supposed to revitalize your body. So it's, it's just like a really powerful air conditioner that you pay $60 for. Very, very powerful. Yeah. 
really powerful. Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, well, wh- what about the cryosphere? Can you tell us what that is? Right. So cryo being cold, <laughs> sphere being the shape of the earth. So basically everything on earth that's so cold that it's frozen. Yeah, and, and that's in contrast with the liquid water, the oceans, the natural systems that are all around the world. And, and together, this makes up this SROCC report, which is basically an examination of what is the state of water, frozen, wet, however it is, and the way that climate change and human systems that affect climate change and the impacts climate change with these water systems have on human civilization and our society. All of this is covered throughout this report. We have things from sea level rise to uh, ocean currents, all sorts of things that, that are covered and have anything to do with these large earth systems and the way that climate change interacts with them. And this is all important because the ocean and the cryosphere make up a huge amount of the earth's surface itself. 71% of the earth's surface is ocean and these oceans contain 97% of earth's water. So obviously the effect that this massive amount of area on the planet earth has in terms of climate change, in terms of global warming, is important. Additionally, beyond this huge mass of water, there are 10% of Earth's land area that are covered by glaciers or ice sheets. This is that cryosphere that Daniel is referring to. And these are important aspects of not just uh, ecosystems, not just environments for local animal and human populations, but also things that drive global weather. And the ocean is a huge critical component of that, as we'll explore throughout this episode. But the cryosphere, the ocean, they support unique habitats. They provide water and food for ecosystems, for human beings. They are incredibly connected with all forms of life and climate on this planet, which is why this report is so important. Yeah. Why do we care about the ocean? Why do we care about the cryosphere? And in the larger picture of climate change, it's important to remember that the entire planet that we live on is one giant living, breathing system. The weather patterns we experience day to day are informed by larger climatic systems going on. The temperature of the ocean and its currents impact jet streams over our head, which impact weather patterns. The reason why some areas of our earth are more agriculturally productive than others beyond soil fertility and other localized things like that have a lot to do with predictable long-term climate patterns that have a lot to do with how the Earth regulates climate through its ocean systems and, and polar regions of the Earth, which do a lot of the shielding of heat for us. Um, these are major, major impacts on the long-range climate systems that we experience in every part of the world. But that's just one aspect. Uh, the oceans and the cryosphere also have direct relationships with our lives. The snow on top of mountains, which is part of the cryosphere, impacts our river flows and runoff and habitats for so many species. The food that we eat, like you mentioned, David, so much of that comes from the ocean. And in terms of people where they actually live, this is a huge piece of this. You know, when it comes to high mountain ranges, for example, part of the cryosphere, that's 10% of the global population, and it occurs on every single continent. In terms of uh, coastal environments where ocean meets land, it's another 10% of the global population, and where a lot of our mega cities are. Small islands, of course, residing in the ocean, 65 million people are going to be extremely heavily impacted by changes in ocean climate. And then we have 4 million people and a major portion of those being indigenous who live in the Arctic North. 
Obviously, these effects are important because there are billions of human lives that are being impacted by the changes in the ocean, the cryosphere, that are ongoing from climate change and anthropogenic warming. So when we discuss these topics, inherently, if we're just discussing human civilization, this is obviously important. But of course, these effects and changes go well beyond humans and into the various animals, plants, and the ecosystems they create and depend upon in these environments. But let's maybe start talking about some of these changes that the report goes over. And there are many, and, and honestly, these reports, they're like 35 pages long, I think both of them. And the vast majority of each are just like a, basically a paragraph or two on each one of these areas that are being changed dramatically by the slow and consistent warming of the earth. And let's run through these observed changes, David, but it's important to to point out that we have a couple episodes already on ocean topics, going back to the very first couple weeks of this podcast, two years ago, episode six, Dead in the Water, we talk about uh, changes in the ocean environment. We also talk about overfishing, episode 42, No Catch. Episode 70, we return to the polar regions of the earth, and that's in thinner ice. We also talk about overfishing. Well, even the very first episode, Daniel, Thin Ice, is when we begin addressing both the ocean and the cryosphere here. So when it comes to understanding the effects climate change has on the world, there really is no better place to start than this area, which is why this is such an important report. And uh, I don't want to get us too lost in this section where there's because uh, there are a lot of stats and figures and numbers and gigatons and percentages and this much pH and whatever. And it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. If you want that details again, like I said, go check out the report. But we're going to just sort of breeze through this and hit some of the highlights, the points that we think are really important to get across uh, and, and then discuss why this is important and, and go from there. Yeah, we don't have to cover everything, So, but why don't we start with one of the most iconic topics when it comes to climate change, and that's melting ice. Now, 34% of all the ice that's melting on planet Earth is coming from glaciers outside of Antarctica and Greenland, which leaves the other 66% attributed entirely to the Antarctic ice sheet and the Greenland ice sheet. We're also seeing reductions in snow cover throughout the globe. These are things like high mountain ranges, other areas where there's a lot of snowfall that normally would stay throughout the winter, but is now melting, contributing to major water runoff, and also changing the way that plants have traditionally grown in these areas where the ground is now no longer covered by snow and it impacts the soil, it impacts plants' ability to grow, which is changing environments. And we've seen reductions in sea ice extent and thickness in the Arctic Circle. Uh, we talked about this at length in that episode, Thinner Ice. But, th but this is the big concerning one, right, David? Yeah, we're really starting off with a bang right here. And when we're discussing global warming and climate change, there really is no area that gets more attention than the very precipitous decline in ice. It it's something that's obvious. That is there and apparent. You can literally look at it with satellite images comparing, oh, you know, this is 2000 and this is 2020 and see the difference with your eyes. You can see it in, in deferring economic activity where boats are for the first time going across these Arctic areas that used to be blocked up by ice and are now viable passages both for, for trade as well as for tourism. But 
when we talk about climate change, melting ice, that is the poster child. And it has gotten worse and it has gotten worse faster than expected. Currently, because of human caused climate change, uh, for example, September has the lowest ice levels for the past thousand years with pretty high confidence that this is happening. So we are seeing something unprecedented and we are rapidly heading towards that so-called blue ocean event. And this report, at least in the summaries, doesn't really go into that. It doesn't make predictions of when that will occur, minus some graphs, though the papers that they reference absolutely do. And what we found time and time again when we've looked at these papers is that we are heading towards this event, this time when, depending on how you define a blue ocean event, this is where the total ice in the Arctic Ocean is less than 10% down to all the way 0%, depending once again on your metrics. But this is bad because as we've discussed multiple times, uh, there's this thing called albedo, which is how much energy is reflected by the environment. The sun comes down normally, right? And it heats things up. And you, you felt this yourself before. A black car gets hotter than a white car. And that's because the white car has a higher albedo. It reflects more of the sun's energy into the atmosphere and it absorbs less. Well, guess what? Ice is a lot lighter than Arctic Ocean water is. So when we have lost that protective light ice covering, then we are putting far more energy into these ocean systems. And when the ocean systems get more energy in it, it has a wide variety of effects in terms of climate, in terms of weather, in terms of life, and in terms of human activity. So this is the canary in the coal mine. And unfortunately, it is, it is faster than expected and it is worse than expected. And we may very well see that blue ocean event in the latter part of this decade which is something that even a few years ago, scientists would have said would never have been possible. But now if we get you know, a particularly powerful El Nino one or two years in a row, that might be it. And once that happens, oh boy, hold on to your hats because we are in for a ride. But this section also, Daniel, it, you mentioned a couple other things, reductions in snow cover. Once again, this is also important because of the decrease in albedo, but also this changes local ecosystems. Uh, areas that were originally going to be more wet because they had snow cover on it now, we're starting to see these high altitude regions change in their makeup. Permafrost is melting more, and this is causing the formation of lakes, which changed the albedo, but also changes the local hydrological systems, where some areas are more wet because of their access to lakes, but also some soil is drier because it lacks this snow cover that would slowly add moisture into the environment. And this might cause increases in fires. This might cause increase in droughts, which will make those fires worse when they happen. And these large mega tundra fires release huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere, causing a vicious cycle, increasing global warming. And so these systems, something simple happening, the temperature goes up, ice melts. We can see very quickly how it starts spiraling, and it makes the math, the modeling, the problem of estimating what's happening increasingly difficult and increasingly we found unfortunately that our models are tending conservative and this report is a great example of that where because this is based on science that is at this point a couple years old it's based on observations because of this science is a couple years old the observations tend to be five or plus years old and it's based on models that existed for the previous AR5 IPCC report, while the AR6 report is currently going underway right now. That should be out by 2022 in its final version that we might start seeing previews before then. The models that they're running for this upcoming report are much, much worse. And we're going to talk about that in a future episode. 
So what we're seeing right now, dire as it is in this report, is just a sliver of what might actually be happening and what these reports might have in the future. And the tone of this report is interesting. And part of the reason why we wanted to focus on this, because we are shifting from a more conservative, oh yeah, things will be fine, to there are several sections of this that we'll get to that say there are huge problems and not foreseeable fixes coming. So it's interesting to see that, that shift happening. And this ice, the cryosphere, uh, snow cover, melting glaciers, the melting Arctic ice and Antarctic ice, this is key in that equation. Key indeed. Another major change observed in the cryosphere has to do with permafrost. And it's, what's interesting about permafrost is it's not really ice necessarily, but um, it's organic matter and soil that has been so cold, so frozen, that it remains frozen uh, underneath the ground for at least five years or something like that. It's basically permanently frozen ground, but it's organic material. It's not water. And what's really important about that is that all this organic matter represents stored carbon. In fact, it's estimated there's 1,600 gigatons of organic carbon stored in the various tundras of the, of the earth, locked away in that soil. Um, and 1,600 gigatons is about double all the carbon in the atmosphere. So, you know, <laughs> everything that we've released into the atmosphere that's, that's raised the, you know, basically we've doubled the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right? We're up to 416 parts per million now, a new record. And we were like, what, like 200 and something pre-industrial levels? 325, 350. 325, 350. Okay, so we've, you know, not quite doubled it, but all the carbon in the atmosphere, well, that double that, and that's what's in this permafrost. And as it turns out, one of the observations in this report is that permafrost temperatures have increased to record high levels, and they are increasing faster than the global average, uh, which is bad for the release of carbon. It's bad for the re release of methane. We talked a little bit about this plathrate gun theory, which is that. Um, you know, there's pockets of an, extreme pockets of methane in the ground, but it's locked in by this frozen permafrost. But as this permafrost thaws, there's this theory that potentially a whole bunch of methane could be released at, at once. And methane as a greenhouse gas is more consequential than CO2, although it, it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere. But the idea is that if enough methane is released all at once, you get this massive warming event almost overnight on a geological scale, that is, and you have major, major consequences. Another thing to worry about with thawing permafrost, uh, taking us back to episode 20, Irresistible, is that there's a bunch of pathogens that are frozen, right, in this soil. They're inactive, but they're not quite dead. All these old bacteria and viruses, things like anthrax. And as the permafrost thaws, all of a sudden we have these ancient prehistoric, supermassive pathogens that just get released. Um, and this actually happened. A bunch of reindeer got infected with anthrax in a... In a Not just reindeer, but the villagers as well. Yeah. So that's just something to think about. But, um, well, yeah, that's the cryosphere for you. <laughs> well, uh, I, just, I just want to circle back to that, um, to the permafrost one more time. Because we talked about how in, in previous IPCC reports, especially in AR5, they just left out the permafrost from their models because it was too difficult to model. They weren't sure how much there was. So they, they're just like, we'll just skip this. 
Uh, same with a lot of those methane emissions. And recently we've seen papers coming out saying, oh, we've, we've underestimated the release of methane by about twice. So there's double the methane coming out right now than we thought. The clathrates uh, are still a big question. A lot of those are frozen underwater. And so we probably don't have too much to worry about right now, but the possibility always exists there. But the bigger thing is, is we are seeing large amounts of carbon being emitted from this permafrost. And part of the reason why the newest model runs from UK Met, from France, that are suggesting this really dire temperature future where climate change has just exploded in, in its speed is because they've integrated for the first time this permafrost into the models. And so where are we seeing the most warming in the world happening, Daniel? Right here in the Arctic where this permafrost exists. This is the most fragile ecosystems in the world. They're changing faster than anywhere else in the world. And they have the biggest possibility for causing devastating change to not just the climate, not just to the local ecosystems, but also to human civilization. And as you read this report, they suggest there's very little we can do about keeping this permafrost locked. There are several tipping points, areas in these models where we say, okay, if this thing happens, we really can't do much about it. Uh, sea level rise is one of them. And then the permafrost release is another. So at this point, we might be looking in a baked in release of a lot of this stuff. The question is just, how quickly will it happen and how much? So even under the most optimistic models right now, under the current AR5, we're seeing about half of this stuff released over the coming century or so. And that bodes extremely bad for humanity, for all life on this earth. It certainly bodes. David, I want to leave the cryosphere now. I think we've gotten our cold shock therapy, you know, the this is why they limit those cryoshock uh, chambers to just three. Are you three. being like paid off by the cryopod industry? This feels like a weird ad. Cryopods. Um, well, they're really good for your mental health, uh, good for your physical Wait, what's this check here? It says, two ashes, ashes, read Daniel Forkner, cryosphere pod Wait. industries. Um, I don't know what that is. Can you send it to me? Yeah, sure. So I can take a look and investigate? I'll just, I'll just forward it to you. Yeah. Okay, thanks. But let's leave the cryosphere and talk about the second most iconic, you know, image that you get when you talk about climate change, and that is rising seas. And as this report points out, sea levels have been rising, and the rate of that change is accelerating. Um, and the impacts of sea level rise are numerous, and they are exacerbated by other climate events, things like hurricanes and cyclones, extreme rain, uh, tsunamis. And in fact, this IPCC report projects the frequency of a new phenomenon called extreme sea level events, or ESLE. And these scientists project that by 2050, extreme sea level events that until now have occurred some, you know, once every century, you know, once every hundred years or so, these events are going to start occurring every single year. That's once per year. And that's, that's literally what they say. Quote, extreme sea level events that are historically rare, once per century in the recent past, are projected to occur frequently at least once per year at many locations by 2050 in all projected scenarios. That is, regardless of what we do. And they will occur at least annually at most locations by 2100. Now, how, how does an extreme sea level event occur? 
in terms of the physics of it. And this is a little complex, David, so I want to provide a visual example here for you. I want to make sure you understand this because it's important. So let me break it down for you in simple terms, okay? Okay. So all right, let's let's say that um let's say I pour you a glass of warm chocolate milk. Okay. Now I fill the glass up halfway and I hand it to you and I ask you to go take a seat. You know, go sit down over there. That's no problem, right? I mean, I'm I'm kind of clumsy, but I think even I can manage that. Right? Like you can you can handle that. You can go take a seat, right? Okay, well, now let's say that I fill that glass up with warm chocolate milk all the way to the brim, David. I mean, that chocolate milk, you know, sometimes someone overfills a glass and you, before you even pick it up, you bend down to like sip at the edge before you even pick it up. Getting like a nice milk mustache, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, you don't have that option. You got to take this glass, you got to carry it across the room and you got to sit down. I mean, you could do it, right? I, I guess I could. Okay, well, now let's say that I tell you you're late and you're in a rush and I'm throwing things at you and the ground is shaking and... Uh, there's an earthquake happening. <laughs> there's an earthquake happening. You're trying to get through like a, a disco party and like people are bumping into... How likely are you to spill that glass now? Uh, 100%. It's going all over my chest. That's extreme sea level events in a nutshell. Okay. okay. I think I, we got a little bit of way with your metaphor, but I, I think I gather it. When the thing is more full, it's more likely that things are going to spill. Yeah, now what this report found is that the rate of sea level rise since 2006 is unprecedented over the last 100 years. Now, most of the rise is due to ice melt, like we just talked about, but some of it has to do with thermal expansion. Now, this is another complex concept, David, that I, I need you to wrap your head around, so let me break it down in simple terms for you. Imagine that you are a water molecule right? And you're at a concert. Yeah, you're, you're getting your water on. You're at this concert, but it's an indoor concert. Oh, I'm dancing. The, the venue is a little bit too small. You can't see me right now, but I'm like pumping. I'm dancing. The people are packed in tightly. Now the band starts playing. So yeah, you're dancing. People are dancing. The, the AC of the building breaks. Uh -oh. So the, there's all this heat being generated and you're sweating, which a little ironic because you are literally water itself, but you're also sweating water. I'm always sweating. Everyone around me sweating. They're all sweating too from my dancing. And so you're, you're hot. People are dancing. I know I'm hot. But you're hot. Yeah. So now you start pushing people away from you. You're trying, you know. Oh, Moshin, get away from me. It's too hot. It's too hot. That's what's happening in your glass of chocolate milk, David. That's thermal expansion. All those molecules are pushing each other away. That causes sea level rise. Well, as, as And the band that happens to be playing is anthropogenic global warming. Yeah. And as dumb as that, that example is, Daniel, you're totally right. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that when we're discussing sea level rise, about half of it comes from melt, which everyone thinks is the big problem. And the other half comes from this warming you're talking about, where the ocean is physically getting more full because the water is just getting hotter which is crazy to wrap your mind around. But when you're talking about this much volume, you know, on the order of a couple millimeters a year in change is caused by this warming. Wild. And I know we talked about this before, Daniel, maybe all the way back in like episode two, Concrete Reef, where we discussed some, some sea level rise and the consequences it has. But part of it is this, this melting. Part of it is this uh, warming. And as time goes on, as we get closer to these 
decadal and century-long warming systems uh, and the melts and stuff caused by that. It also becomes gravity. <laughs> the, the ice caps are very heavy. The large glacier sheets in Greenland, it weighs a lot. And it actually pulls, using its gravitational force, it pulls water away from some areas. Um, and as these melts, we lose that gravitational force. So in certain areas, like the eastern coast of the United States, for example, you see even faster sea level rise because uh, not only is it warming, not only is there more water in there, but the gravitational pull, pulling the water away from these sections, begins to be added in. And then also because of that, you see, start seeing continental uplift because now there's all this weight that was on the continent and is gone. So now the land is physically rising or other land is going down. It's incredible how just the act of adding more energy into a system and warming up ice can cause huge changes all over the world in ways you never expected. And, and as this report goes on, it, there's even more ways that this is, this is happening. Uh, the ways that wind and current carry the ocean also has a dramatic effect on sea level rise. And so it's incredible, first off, that this report exists at all because there are so many variables when it comes to exploring the ocean. And they actually mentioned at some points about how in some areas, particularly in the Pacific, there just isn't enough data to really make confident uh, inferences on certain uh, subjects that, that we discuss here because there are so many variables. Trying to model this is impossible. And it's incredible that the models that we have had so far that are used in this report, that are used in many of the papers that this report is using to compile this information, have been as accurate as they have been, even if they tend towards uh, conservatism. And it's, it's a testament to the work that all these climate researchers have done. And I, I know we like criticizing some things in these reports, but, but really they are incredible works of, of human determination. And I don't want to lose that fact. Yeah. And I just want to point out why it's so serious to have, you know, historically once every century, extreme sea level events becoming once every year. I mean, if you just do a, a, an internet search for a list of disasters worldwide ranked by their cost, you'll see that a great percentage of the most costly disasters this world has ever seen, at least the, in terms of recent civilization, are ocean-related sea level rise events. You have the 2011 earthquake that resulted in a tsunami off the coast of Japan and, and flooding the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant costing $360 billion in an event that people are still and will continue to feel the, the negative consequences of that. Then just an, a couple disasters down, you have five tropical cyclones all impacting North America from Katrina, Harvey, Maria, Sandy, Irma, all costing, you know, Katrina $125 billion. Same with Harvey. These are massive events and all of them are associated with massive water dumps, um, flooding off the coasts. I mean, this is going to be uh, a wild ride to experience something like this every year. And it's, it's not just these, these increasing amounts of catastrophes. It's not just the actual slow inundation of land by sea level rise, um, anywhere from a half meter to a meter by the end of the century. And then also this report continues up through the next couple hundred years, depending on the model. Um, where you might see anything from one meter to three meters of drowning. And unfortunately, uh, as new findings have found that the Antarctic ice shelves are melting much faster than we thought, I'm sure new models will have that number increase even more. But there are 
larger waves happening too. The average large wave in the ocean is is getting bigger every year because of this warming. The large freak waves that happen that can cause dramatic impacts on on the coast or the shipping vessels, these are increasing in size too. Every time you add more energy to the system, things get more extreme. And our civilization, uh, the ecosystems on Earth, are built to live within a very narrow set of circumstances. And every now and then we get extreme events and we deal with them and then we go back to the way things were. But as these extreme events get more and more frequent and the outlier extreme events get more and more dramatic and worse, then we're going to have to face the fact that things are either too expensive to go on living like this and we need to adapt or way of life just becomes rebuilding everything every year for forever. And that just doesn't seem possible. Well, we mentioned thermal expansion as one of the causes of sea level rise, thermal expansion resulting from a warming ocean. And this report does make some observation about warming and the impacts it will have. Specifically, the ocean has been warming unabated since 1970 at a rate which has doubled since 1993. And we always talk about climate change most often as it relates to surface air temperature. But what's important that this report points out is that all the heat that we have experienced from global climate change, 90% of that has been absorbed by the ocean before we experience it. And the ocean itself has been absorbing some 30% of all the CO2 we've been emitting into the atmosphere. Meaning that if it were not for the ocean, this great body of water, the effects of global warming as we commonly think of them would be impacting us by an increased factor of 10. And instead of 416 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, we'd be closer to 600 parts per million. And David, um, another plug for one of our episodes, episode seven, Last Gasp, uh, I think is a pretty good episode that I encourage everyone to listen to because one thing that is often left out of the climate change discussion is how the density or concentration of carbon in the atmosphere is impacting us biologically. You know, we breathe this every day and our bodies are not necessarily adapted to or evolved for this high concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. And it has impacts on our intellectual abilities, our energy, our mood, our mental health. So, um, Get an air filter if you can. <laughs> but, but ocean warming, David. So warming is an obvious effect here. And we'll talk about heat waves and, and the effect that that can have on marine life in just a moment. But one of the big things and uh, phrases that we hear a lot are ocean acidification. Um, it was actually a phrase termed, Daniel, if you remember, at Biosphere 2 in Arizona, a facility that we toured down there. And it was the discovery that as you pumped huge amounts of carbon dioxide into the environment, the water would absorb a lot of that carbon dioxide and that carbon dioxide would acidify the water. At first, nobody thought this could happen because the ocean is so large that measuring an increase in acidity, and there are some locally between all the different oceans because while it looks like a continuous mass of water, it is not uh, oceans are separate, distinct in terms of thermal activity, salinity, pH. All these things are different, and that's why we divide the oceans. And I'm not a marine biologist, so I can't exactly explain all of that, but there are distinct sections of the world, and uh, uh, acidity is part of it. But as a whole, we've seen this acidity increase throughout the past few decades because of this amount of CO2 that has been absorbed. Huge amounts. Like you said, Tanya, we'd be over 600 parts per million if it wasn't for the ocean uh, saving us briefly at the expense 
of the animal life living within it. And this is the important part about ocean acidification is that it causes the small animals that make up the very basic bottom of the food chain in the ocean. These are things like various types of zooplankton's. These are small uh, invertebrates that use calcium to build up shells and other parts of their bodies. Uh, they are now finding that they're unable to construct these defensive mechanisms and uh, it died because of this process. Either they get eaten or their body physically doesn't work in this higher acid section of the ocean, causing huge amounts of death, unfortunately, at the very bottom of the food chain. And when you wipe out the bottom of the food chain, you don't even have to threaten the material existence of the things on top in terms of warming or acidity or stuff because they starve to death with nothing to eat. So we're seeing a huge shift right now in, in what's living in the ocean. Uh, ecosystems are moving around uh, the, for a variety of reasons, but acidification is absolutely one of them. And it has effects on the open ocean as well as on reefs. And this is one of the big things where there's not a very good path going forward in how to fix this problem. So even if we're able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere using uh, carbon dioxide scrubbers, using various sequestration techniques, when it comes to pulling this out of the ocean, it's a much more difficult process that will take centuries or thousands of years even, as this report makes clear. So this is sort of the beginning of a new normal for the ocean. And if things continue business as usual, this will get much worse. And life, as we know it in the ocean, will be completely changed. And uh, in addition to the overfishing, the population problems that we've seen and elaborated on in this show, in episode 42, No Catch, as we've mentioned before, life is threatened. And the ocean life, which was once the most bountiful section of the world, really, is turning into a giant blue desert. And I, I, I was at an aquarium last week in Daniel and saw these amazing fish and like coral and stuff. But yeah, um, even the, this aquarium, which is aimed at children, had all these uh, signs up talking about these types of acidification and the warming and the pollution and trash we put in the ocean and how it threatens all this, this ocean life. And, you know, they, they try and cheer it up because they don't want to depress little kids. But, you know, it, it made me super sad because I'm looking at all this stuff and a lot of this life just won't be around for maybe not the next generation, but two or three generations from now, they might never know what a lot of this stuff was. They might never know or be able to see a coral reef uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll continue about. But I mean, it's, it's even beyond, you know, the ecosystem services, the, the things that we get from, from all of this life as humans, uh, there's just a, a tragedy of, of, of all this loss. Mm -hmm. uh, and acidification is one of those things that I, I, that's what keeps me up at night. I don't know. There's no solutions. I, I'm, I'm drifting. Maybe you should talk about heat rays. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, the saddest realities of climate change and, and I don't know, the, the destruction of the natural world, which is so much loss that we'll never, ever get back. We talk about this uh, in episode 34, Irreplaceable about the sixth mass extinction. It's really, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the saddest things to think about is so much life that has been created through so much diversity, so much unique change and holding inside them the, the information of millions of years of, of evolution and adaptation that is just being wiped out and we can never, ever recover it. 
which is why we need such dramatic change at this pivotal time in the Earth's history and in our history as a civilization. Um, but back to the reports, uh, we do observe the fact that marine heat waves, um, so basically the ocean can experience heat waves just like we experience uh, air temperature heat waves. Uh, these have doubled in frequency since 1982 and they're becoming much more intense. And marine heat waves are defined as having sea temperatures that exceed the 99th percentile since 1982 in terms of temperature. And it is estimated that 90% of all marine heat waves since 2006 have been caused by humans and our activity. And it's only recently in a paper from August 2019 that scientists have discovered that marine heat waves seem to have severe threats to coral reefs. What the what you were just talking about. These events are distinct from coral bleaching events. Um, from this paper appropriately titled, Rapid Coral Decay is Associated with Marine Heatwave Mortality Events on Reefs, published in Current Biology, the authors write, quote, severe marine heat waves are causing an unprecedented increase in the frequency and severity of mortality events in marine ecosystems, including on coral reefs. The degradation of coral reefs will result in the collapse of ecosystem services that sustain over half a billion people globally. Here, we show that marine heat wave events on coral reefs are biologically distinct to how coral bleaching has been understood to date, and that heat wave conditions result in an immediate heat-induced mortality of the coral colony, rapid coral skeletal dissolution, and the loss of the three-dimensional reef structure. During heat wave induced mortality, the coral skeletons exposed by tissue loss are, within days, encased by a complex biofilm of phototrophic microbes whose metabolic activity accelerates calcium carbonate dissolution to rates exceeding accretion by healthy corals and far greater than has been documented on reefs under normal seawater conditions. The dissolution reduces the skeletal density and hardness and increases porosity, end quote. And coral reefs are extremely important for us. As humans, they're one of the most biologically diverse ecosystems in the world. And they're the place where so much of our fish are born. They are the nurseries of fish everywhere that then go on once they are, you know, past the juvenile stage, they go in to explore deeper waters. But those, without those coral reefs, so many of our fisheries will just simply collapse. And just like oceans can experience heat waves, like we can experience heat waves, they also have something very similar to deserts, or at least conceptually. Deserts on land are defined by rainfall, but there are places in the ocean where because of uh, hypoxia, where there's basically no oxygen, there's no life. And these zones exist at, at various places in the ocean, but because of deoxygenate Deoxy, Deoxy. but because of, but because of, but because of deoxygenation, because deoxygenation. Wait, deoxygenation, deoxygenation. The ocean loses oxygen. In fact, it's lost three uh, percent of its oxygen in the upper thousand meters since 1970. This has resulted in bigger deserts in the ocean. They're called dead zones. And they've expanded by up to 8% since 1970. So fisheries collapsing, deserts in the ocean, coral reefs dying. I mean, I mean, these are 
heavy topics, but this is what's going on. And to come back to that point I was making earlier is, is these ocean changes, even if we get our shit together now and, and we, we start reducing everything we're supposed to, if we start sequestering stuff, these things are locked in and they're happening for hundreds or thousands of years. And this deoxygenation is expected to continue even if we fix everything for hundreds or thousands of years with 7% oxygen loss by the end of the century and then it getting worse from there as time goes on. So we are right now setting the very distant future and the sooner we can stop, the better things will be, but it's not a fix. And a, a lot of these, this hopium, the things that we see push saying, oh, if we just have this technology, things will be fine and we can just cap this. A lot of these facts are unfortunately baked in and it's just about mitigating disaster. Um, to touch on one more large system um, that has been the topic of, of very popular disaster movies is uh, the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. That's a mouthful. This is the, basically, a lot of people know it as the Gulf Stream. It comes up, it carries things around. The Gulf Stream is just part of this larger system, but it is basically a giant convection of and moving water all around the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, it's what makes the uh, much of Europe's weather very mild. Um, it's what uh, actually fuels a lot of the Atlantic hurricanes. This is one of the big global conveyor belts of the ocean, and we know that as climate change uh, continues, this is getting weaker, in large part because of the massive melt happening in the Arctic and in Greenland, dropping this very cold, fresh water into the ocean, which causes increased stratification and sort of disrupts this natural conveyor belt. Instead of sinking like we would expect this water to normally, because it is so fresh, it sort of sits on top and breaks up what would be a normal heat transfer that not only just moves heat around the ocean, but also upwells nutrients from deep parts of the ocean, brings it up so that we can have large amounts of life living off these nutrients, starting from those, those zooplankton, those phytoplankton who take these nutrients, um, grow on it, and then become the bottom of a food chain. So this is getting disrupted. Uh, we don't think it will stop like we see in the movie The Day After Tomorrow. Their scientists are pretty confident that it won't suddenly stop. Um, but they do see it weakening, and they say in the upcoming hundreds of years, regardless of our actions now, that this actually could stop. And what that means is sort of up in the air at the moment, but we know for sure that Europe will find itself much colder. They'll have much more dramatic winter storms. The Atlantic hurricane season will actually get a little bit better, which would be one of the plus sides. Uh, sea level rise on the East Coast would get much higher. There are huge amounts of impacts on uh, local ecosystems fisheries all around uh, North America, Europe, and the northern coast of Africa. These types of effects that are mega effects, the very largest systems driving the ocean and the climate, are hard to predict, but we know that things are happening here and that uh, these changes are unprecedented. We haven't seen this type of stuff before, and certainly if we have not on these very vastly accelerated geologic timescales. And on one hand, it's incredible that our fucked up mistakes can impact these enormous systems that have the power of massive amounts of nuclear bombs going off continuously. But on the other hand, it's sobering that we realize what starts off as individual choices or the actions of corporations and states can destroy huge amounts of life ecosystems, and not just for us now, but going into the future for hundreds or thousands of years. So our actions matter both individually and collectively. And that's something that we need to remember that we're not just living for ourselves, but living for all the life on this planet now and into the future. Well, speaking of ecosystems and, you know, impacts 
of a changing ocean and cryosphere on species and people. Um, I mean, I, f- I feel like it's pretty obvious. I, I don't think we need to go too in-depth on it. I mean, I think one interesting piece from this report is, is how, you know, one mitigation of rising seas is coastal vegetation. So remember that chocolate milk example, David? Well, if we had more um, coral reefs and we had more mangrove forests, it'd be like if I put a top on your uh, chocolate milk glass so that even though you might be stumbling a little bit, that top would prevent a lot of it from escaping, right? Well, unfortunately, nearly 50% of coastal wetlands have been lost over the last 100 years as a result of the combined effects of localized human pressures, sea level rise, warming, and extreme climate events. That's from the report. Um, Freshwater river species have been negatively impacted by the encroachment of salt water thanks to sea level rise. In terms of people, uh, from the report, quote, since the 20th century, the shrinking cryosphere in the Arctic and high mountain areas has led to predominantly negative impacts on food security, water resources, water quality, livelihoods, health and well-being, infrastructure, transportation, tourism, and recreation, as well as culture of human societies, particularly for indigenous peoples. Costs and benefits have been unequally distributed across populations and regions. Adaptation efforts have benefited from the inclusion of indigenous knowledge and local knowledge, end quote. And uh, yeah, I want to hone in on that for just a second. So what's that cliche, David, that you always hear from certain people when we start complaining like we do, or we start bringing up the the doom and gloom, right? You know, something... You mean that that repeated thing like, oh, people have been saying that everything's going to fall apart and the world's going to end for like 5,000 years. And what do you know that's anything different? Yeah, there's that one. And then usually alongside that one is sometimes there is the acknowledgement, oh yeah, things are bad, but you know, at least we have been progressing, right? At least, you know, yeah, we have some issues, but you should be thankful that you don't have to spend your days running from tigers and worrying about if you'll find berries to eat. You know, like this admission that yeah, there are certain things that are bad in the world, but if you compare that to where we are today with civilization, your life is much better. And I think the sentiment behind this type of argument is just completely and utterly wrong. You know, to suggest that we live better than our ancient ancestors because we have air conditioning suggests, on the one hand, that life is only valuable in so much as you can escape from the very earth that birthed us, right? And it also ignores, you know, what you mentioned earlier about the spirituality of life and so many other values beyond just physical comfort. But there is a thread of truth in this cliche about the progress of civilization, and that's that our world, this world of the civilized person, has temporarily paved over the many variables of life that might be experienced by people living in a more intimate relationship to the natural world. I think we can at least concede that for now. You know, many of us in civilization have certainly become accustomed to a certain predictability of life and we owe this stability i think this or this predictability to what again something you mentioned earlier which is a very stable and predictable global climate which is ultimately the very foundation of civilization because let's face it we as civilized people are no smarter we're no inventive than indigenous people 
I mean, even Columbus, Christopher Columbus himself admitted that when he praised the wisdom and the intellect of the very people he met in the West Indies right before he slaughtered them. It just so happens that all the defining traits of civilization are made possible when environmental conditions have low deviation. And, you know, by defining traits of civilization, I'm talking about things like our ability to sit in cafes all day eating potato chips or driving a car across the country on a perfectly laid concrete highway, exploiting your factory slaves, uh, managing an enormous field of corn, or throwing wine parties in your furnished apartment atop a 60-story tower of concrete and steel. Or your wine cave, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, All these things uh, of the civilized person, they're easier. When the earth is not hurtling massive hurricanes or tsunamis or violent temperature changes, extreme heat waves, and every other imaginable weather variation that you can think of, civilization requires long-term stability and predictability. We can drink coffee in a cafe all day, not because we are some superior being, but because the coffee Arabica plant was not wiped out this year by a heat wave. And those beans that were harvested by slaves in South America, uh, they made it onto a train which can travel north on a rail network that hasn't warped or been disrupted by earthquakes or power outages or some other natural phenomena, which means that when the beans arrive in North America, the bank that financed the distribution company gets its interest payment on time, uh, which means a bunch of truck drivers have work for the day and they don't have to default on their mortgage just yet. And those coffee shops have a product to sell the profit of which goes to the landlord who inherited the shopping center that you're sitting in. And you're sitting there, by the way, because you get paid to write code for a tech company that has produced a product that uses AI to manage stock market investments. And the only reason there is demand for such a product is because of all that activity that I just mentioned. And all that activity, by the way, is only possible because the earth in its infinite generosity blessed us with a plant that produced a bean that when we roast it, and filter it with water, we get coffee. That's our civilization. No matter how much we try to deny it, our civilization comes from the earth. And our systems and our infrastructures depend on very predictable, small ranges of weather phenomena and climate stability. And so that cliche that life is better today because you know, we don't have to acknowledge the air or the trees that give us life it ignores every value beyond our physical comfort. It, it ignores spirituality, community, happiness, the feeling of being connected to a place, of shared history, the satisfaction and, uh, of gratitude and reciprocity found in people who celebrate their relationship with the earth. You know, David, I think personally, if I could be reborn after this life, you know, if I had any say in it, I would most certainly prefer to be born thousands of years ago into a community of people who live in harmony with the earth, who, who do not exploit that which is freely given, who value life, all life as sacred, and treat one another with ultimate respect and compassion, and who ultimately are more resilient than any of us coffee shop nomads. But that's just me. And I can say that I went to school, I went to school, and I went through, and I'm, I went through the whole pro process, and and it was difficult for me because there's some counter 
um, positions that were taken in the classroom. And even today when I work for uh, USDA, I, you know, the, I don't agree with all the practices or practices have been developed and they don't say that they've been developed by indigenous knowledge. So we, we, we talk about one big thing that we talk about is soil health principles, soil health principles and practices. And, and I remember being in my soil class and they were talking about how there's a soil microbiology and they were talking about how the soil's living. And I raised my head and I said, I, of course the soil's living. And I explained to them, I said, my people, when we came and we were created on this earth, we came, we rose from the soil. The soil is a place where we came from when we entered this world. It's also the place that we, we exit this world. Um, that soil was given life by Sky Woman who fell from the sky, gave her life to give life to the soil. Everything that we know, all of creation came from that. How could it not be living? You know, how could it not be alive? And I think I took the professor back on that one. And, and it wasn't my intention, but it was, the point is, is that some of this knowledge that we talk about, and I do, and I see this time and time again, we talk about companion planting and cover crops and things like this. These are based off of our principles. Three sisters, companion planting, cover crop systems, keeping, we, we did no-till practices. We did all of these things that we talk about, regenerative practices, are things, are, are practices that we've already done and perfected. When colonists came here, they talk about, you can read in the journals, about how it was a bounty, how there was so much food, how much there was so much fowl and, and fish and everything else. Um, that didn't come from just God as they attributed it to. That came from good practices, best management practices done by the indigenous populations here. And we were able to feed, there's estimates of over 100, 100 million people living on this continent. 100 million people, and we had complex political systems and agriculture systems that allowed us to feed those people without jail cells, without court systems, without police, um, without needs for f banks or any, any of these institutions that we hold so dear um, today. That was Cassius Spears Jr. speaking at a recent American Farmland Trust conference, and Cassius is a member of the Tribal Council Nahagansett Indian Tribe. But here we are today, people who have forsaken our dependence on the earth for our dependence on corporations, and we have lost sight of the fact that those corporations themselves depend on the earth. The only difference is they take from the earth that which she freely gives but they take too much, leaving the earth depleted in return. And then they package what they've taken into soulless products and they sell it back to us at the cost of a lifetime of toil and labor. A lifetime of labor that keeps us so busy, we don't have time to recognize the failing oceans and the melting cryosphere all around us. She's Daniel. I mean, that's a lot. It's all really good. Um, I feel like, like, uh, that's like a good ending episode moment. Um, and, and I would, but there's a couple, just a couple more things I want to address. And like I said, at the beginning of this episode, we are not uh, touching on everything that's in this report. Um, and I'm going to talk in a, in a moment about why partially that's the case. Um, we're just hitting some of these highlights here. 
and, and if we're hitting highlights, then I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff they talk about with, with mountain ecosystems, with ecosystems being damaged all around the world, especially in coastal areas, the impacts on, on humans. Uh, you address some of that, that sustainability that is only made possible by the fact that things are predictable. Well, you know, we're going to see, because of these changes in snowfall, things like increased landslides, avalanches, loss of reliable water in large parts of the world, both in terms of drinking, but also in hydroelectric production. Uh, algal blooms, which you've already seen in the news, which damage tourism, but also local fisheries and sometimes directly poison people who are there for that. Increased flooding. All these have impacts on human life and all of them have impacts on animal and plant life around the world. This is an increasingly erratic, unsustainable future that we are being forced into because of our actions. And so the cry then becomes, of course, is always, what can we do? And this report does analyze and take a look at some mitigation strategies. But Daniel, if I'm being honest, it leaves a lot to desire. And a lot of these mitigation strategies end up being sort of this graph or chart they put up. I mean, like, if we do this, here's the downsides and here's the upsides and here's how much it'll cost and here's why it'll probably never happen. Mm, And honestly, the charts are a little funny. Um, You can see them. We'll, We'll capture some of these as images. Put them on the website, ashesashes.org, so you could take a look at just those without having to download these, you know, 40-page papers and try and figure out where it is. But one of the themes that I was really personally happy to see pushed in this report is something that we've harped on quite a bit, and that is oftentimes the people that are most at risk because of these changes are the ones that are least equipped to respond to it, mostly because they're some of the poorest people on earth, partially because... They are the most exploited people on earth. And in that same chain, it means they're also some of the least responsible for these damages occurring in the first place on earth. But they really got the short end of the stick in every possible way. And the report does acknowledge that uh, indigenous populations, it does acknowledge that uh, the, the global poor are most at risk and that the quote unquote good, effective mitigation strategies, things like seawalls, things like uh um, more resilient structures. These aren't options to these populations. Uh-huh. But it, at that point, it just sort of stopped and throws his hands up in the air and be like, okay, oh, well, I don't know what to do. Um, which is understandable because this is a purport, once again, aimed at policymakers. Um, there is a technical summary, and I'm going to talk about the difference between the two of those in just a moment. But in the end, this is going towards people designing policy at the UN, at the IPCC, and at the um, countries around the world who are signatories of these global climate treaties. And these signers, these diplomats, these these people who are government representatives are beholden not to the people in their nations that they claim to represent, but the corporate interests in those places who don't want us to rock the boat, who don't want to see the actual change necessary to actually truly mitigate these strategies, which is why we see strategies like build more stuff to fix the problem. Nowhere in this report does it say things about, you know, change in economy. Nowhere in this report does it say, uh, look at, at different types of supply chains for feeding your people. None of this is mentioned because it's not palatable to the powers that be that cause these problems once again in the first place. The forces of economic change that we have praised for the past hundred years have instead dug us into this massive hole built on the debt of life's built on the debt of happiness, built on the debt of stability, borrowed from the future. And we are finding ourselves at the precipice of paying off that debt for not just the coming decades, 
but for hundreds and possibly even thousands of years, as we've established in this report that the future of the ocean holds for us. Well, David, real, uh, you know, a thought just occurred to me that when, the, when we say that the people who are most heavily impacted by climate change are also the least able to do anything about it, I think we have to be careful not to allow, um, I think, this narrative take shape, which is that we as Western civilized people or we as the technological innovators, you know, so-called anyway, we're the ones that are smartest, we're the ones the most intellectually capable of solving climate change. The reason why local people, you know, in small islands or coastal habitats are least capable of reversing climate change is not because they are not as smart as us, it's because climate change is being fueled by the fact that we, as a broader uh, civilization, are setting bombs off in the atmosphere. And the solution is not technological innovation. The solution is to stop setting bombs off. The solution is to stop pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere. And those local indigenous people are not doing that. The solution is not we need to come up with a, a technology that only the most intellectually capable groups of people on this planet could. The solution is to stop doing dumb shit, which is what we are doing. And so often, the indigenous people, local people, they're, not, they're the ones not doing dumb shit. So they are, they are already achieving what we need to achieve. And to just continue on this thread of you know, civilization bashing that I'm on, I want to read one of the, uh, a quote from the IPCC report in a section where it's identifying the challenges that we face going forward. And one of the challenges to addressing climate change is, quote, the temporal scales of climate change impacts in the ocean and the cryosphere and their societal consequences operate on time horizons which are longer than those of governance arrangements. For example, planning cycles, public and corporate decision-making cycles, and financial instruments. Such temporal differences challenge the ability of societies to adequately prepare for and respond to long-term changes, including shifts in the frequency and intensity of extreme events. End quote. Yeah, so we have a challenge, which is the society that, that our world has built, you know, this, this global economy we have, it doesn't really consider the, the long-term effects of actions. Our government is not really set up to consider uh, the impacts of its decisions, you know, 10 years down the line. Oh, our, our financial instruments aren't capable of thinking on broad timelines. So that's our challenge when it comes to climate change. Here's another audio clip from Cassius. It's the unknown is difficult. And I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that spirituality needs to be included into our decision-making. Um, when I come here and I see the cities and the development, it always, always feel a little saddened because I can picture what it once was. Um, and they teach us, and one thing that, you know, as, as I go through life, I don't know everything, and I'm, I'm, I'm relatively young, I got four kids, but I'm relatively young, and I, I pick up lessons that fill in those voids of understanding. So if you look at your hand, a hand is a good representation of, of what I'm talking about. It's a circle, and uh, Native people use a circle to explain a lot of things. We don't think in a linear fashion. We think in where there's no beginning and no end. So your decisions, when you think that way, your decisions have more uh, 
are not fi finite, they have effect that's long lasting. So that allows us to think in terms that you probably heard of like seven generations and things like that. Because what we do is not only just for us, but it affects, it comes back, it reoccurs. But your hand, if you look at it, everyone has a hand. This can be represented in four directions as your, so there's different types of knowledge that we deal with as indigenous people. There's the physical knowledge. There's the intellectual knowledge, which you use your head. And I think those are the ones that we're pretty much talking about here today. We also got into some of the emotional knowledge. So if you look at your finger, your biggest finger, right here, your middle finger, that is your physical, physical understanding of the world. The second, this right here, the ring finger, that is your intellectual knowledge. And then right here is your emotional. Now the pinky is your smallest. That is your spiritual knowledge. And that's, they, they, they put that on, we, we teach it this way because spiritual knowledge is something that we're all trying to achieve. And we never, never, because it's the intangible, the intangible. It's those things that we can't quantify. And that's something that as humans, to become balanced, become centered, to be centered and to have those, to have all those different knowledges working in harmony, um, that's something that we always need to strive. That's a reminder that our spirituality is something that we always need to work towards in understanding. And I bring that up because the spirituality is important because when you're trying to motivate people to have a relationship with the land, spirituality is a key component of that. If you can't believe in something bigger than yourself, um, how are you going to implement seven generations of changes with the today, you know, with the now? Um, the circle is also represented you, know, you hear commonly people say, I'm a center of attention or center of the universe. That's usually a negative thing. But in terms of indigenous teachings, we all are the centers of the universe. We all are made out of the things that the universe is made out of. Um, I thank the speakers that came before us because, came before me because they laid all this out. We are stardust. We are the things that make all of humanity, all of creation. We are those things. Um, and that we all are the center of their, our own universes. And all those circles that we all, um, that encompass us, us overlap with each other. So, our, so to be balanced and have those things are going to affect everyone else's circles. So if we all come together and we all unite, it's like a chain, right? It's a chain that all affects us. And the, the stronger that chain, the start, stronger that continuation of that thought. And that's why it shows that we are a community, that we are an organ, organism that's all living together as one. And that's an important concept because if we don't think in that, in those terms where our decision affects others, uh, we're just not going to, for humanity, we're not going to move forward. And I think that a lot of people who grow up in civilization tend to scoff at or, or don't take seriously the type of thinking presented to us by people like Cassius. I certainly didn't earlier in my life. And that shouldn't be surprising, right? I mean, the modern economy is founded on principles of human superiority. Western civilization, which traces its lineage to Socrates and Plato, is founded on the idea that man is separate from nature. And so, of course, when indigenous people speak out from the earth to say, what are you doing, you crazy people? 
of course, our response is, well, what do you know? We have bullet trains and Tesla cars and money. (laughs) But here we are on the precipice of the greatest environmental disaster this planet has ever seen in the last several million years. A disaster which, by the way, we humans engineered over the span of just a few hundred years. And when we look around, we have to admit that this great civilization we have built is wholly unprepared, philosophically, spiritually, and intellectually, to do anything about it. And so maybe if we could set our pride aside, we would realize that the answers have been here all this time. I talked to some old-timers, and they told me that, you know... I asked them, you know, I, I get wrapped up in saying, well, you know, there's these policies and these legal decisions or the loss of land or loss of food or loss of language. How are we going to how are we going to survive the next hundred years, thousand years? And they always tell me there'll be Narragansetts here. We'll be here. Um, and I still am still trying to wrap it around my head. But what I, what I think they're saying is that we've been through so much and that the fact of our, I'm going to go back to relationships, the fact that our community is strong and that our relationships and bonds are strong, and I use the term relationships and not just mean our community and our people, but our relationships with Mother Earth, our relationships with the land, that we can exist through anything and and I think that we can be a partner in anything that this, uh, anything that's coming, any crisis that's coming, that the tribe, communities, these indigenous communities can be a partner in that strategy and planning and figuring out ways to uh, approach things like climate change, farms, agriculture, food systems, um, regenerative practices, all those things. I know we get caught in a frame of thinking And we know that we have a system in which we need to work within. But think outside the box. Look to your partners. Look to your allies. Look to people like tribal nations who have uh, some of these same concerns as they move into into the future. Um, Look to these sovereign entities as places to to, um, develop plans and strategies on how to move forward into the future. And I would say that more partners that you can have at the table, the better. Um, because this is something that's not just a, a, a problem that's not just mine. Loss of land, loss of farm now. is not just a problem that I'm going to have to deal with. This is a problem that we all have to deal with. And if we're going to have a future, if we're going to have a future on this earth, we're going to have a future for my children to grow up into, we need to collectively figure out ways to approach these systems. And so partnering with indigenous people, getting the smart people at the table, and it's not the smart people we traditionally think about, that's a way forward. And going along that vein, what can we do, David? What can we do about this situation? We're going to have to scale back, right? Again, the solution is not come up with some great innovation. The solution is to stop doing dumb shit. And so much of the dumb shit we do is in this idea we have that the economy must grow into infinity and that perpetual growth is the the root of progress when it's the opposite. We need to scale back. We don't need technological innovation. We need to decrease our activity. 
And since this is the topic of ocean, I want to pull one more example from this conference that I went to from someone talking about fisheries and the way we fish our oceans, which is obviously a huge problem like we talked about in No Catch, that episode on overfishing. And that something happened in the 70s worldwide when international laws were being written about who owns the ocean and this vast space this vast global area which had traditionally been thought of as common area that that was inhabited by all the people of the earth that suddenly changed in the 1970s when people like the united states and this broad coalition of countries decided that the ocean could be privatized that companies could own zones of the ocean and we saw the expansion of acceptable ranges for private fishing go from 3 miles off the coast to 200 miles off the coast and with that we had the consolidation of uh, fishing companies and corporations that could now own fleets of fishing and we had instead of thinking of the ocean as a common territory this privatization ushered in massive fishing industries that have led to the collapse of fisheries around the world and in terms of the effect on people we had a system much more resembling sharecropping where major corporations would own zones of the ocean and then if you wanted to fish that as an individual citizen you had to lease boats and lease rights from these corporations well there are people pushing back on this and this is important we need to stop thinking this way we need to stop empowering major corporations to extract from our land and our oceans and start putting that power that responsibility and that accountability back into local people back into those who inhabit these areas. And, and so this is an example that comes from the fishing industry in Maine. And this comes from Robin Alden, co-founder of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. So I'll play that now. Um, aren't they all going to disappear anyway in this climate changing world we live in? I'm asking you not to give up on them, particularly the nearshore fisheries that are managed by state agencies and lie within the realm probably of many of you in this room to impact. So why not? Because we can't afford to. Fisheries are food. We can't safely rely on getting all our fish protein from aquaculture. And beyond that, ocean health matters to planetary health. All those species that used to be teeming and bountiful, they create the health of the ocean. This is important. Ensuring that our oceans are a breathing, food-producing organ is key to life for us on Earth. So right now, in New England, we still have diversity. Just think of it. Clams, quahogs, urchins, menhaden, crabs, scallops, scup, black sea bass, eels, alewives, shad, winter flounder, tautog, fluke. The thing Dogfish, to realize is that fish. this exists because of a deliberate policy. It's been observed that Maine has avoided the consolidation and corporatization that has trapped and sapped so many fishing communities um, throughout many areas of North America. And why? First and foremost, it's because of the owner-operator law. This is the bedrock legal structure that underlies Maine's strong inshore fishery. Fishing access rule rights have evolved through history, starting with community controls, and then morphing into licenses. And then in the last 40 years, the federal model has embraced the economic theory that by making ac access to fishing more like land, something that can be owned, 
stewardship would be enhanced, called privatization. These federal rights can now be bought and sold, transferred out of the region, or held by holding companies. In the New England groundfish fishery, for example, new entrant fishermen must lease rights from entities who are ashore and own them. These fishermen are essentially sharecroppers. Lobster fishery is a completely different model. So in 1995, Maine undertook major legislative changes. Legislation required a two-year apprentice program for new entrants. It made special uh, arrangements for youth entry. It imposed a trap limit, and it established a zone system that divided up Maine's 5,000-mile coast into seven zones, giving fishermen some rights to uh, govern themselves within that, those zones. But all of those changes rested on one bedrock item, which is that it codified the traditional um, approach, owner-operator approach. So consider what this means. A lobster license licenses a person. In contrast to the federal right that can be held by an owner ashore or consolidated, that person who holds the lobster license must be on board to fish legally and that person must own the boat they're fishing on. It's impossible to build up a fleet and hire skippers. That lobsterman is personally accountable for obeying rules. Your license is your livelihood, and you can lose it for violations. A license is not transferable. When you die, your license disappears, creating room for new apprentice-qualified people. No one creates an estate through their license. It's simple, but with immense um, implications. These are all very good and important thoughts, and I'm glad we're getting a diversity of perspectives and interests here. But if there's one more thing I could add, Daniel, and this is something I've been alluding to through this entire report, uh, let me just grab my tinfoil and put it on for one second. It's this need for us to be honest, which is something that has been lacking in some of these reports that we've seen so far. And I've talked a couple times about the technical report and the policymaker summary. Uh, these are both summaries. Okay, they're the same length, more or less. And I encourage all of you to download both of them and take a look at them side by side. So we started with reading the policymaker summary, Daniel, you and you and I. Yeah. And then we turned to the technical summary and we filled out some parts by reading the additional chapters. But we figured, okay, you know, we're going to start with the policymaker summary because that's probably the broadest look at this. It's probably the most straightforward and simple and laid out because it's for non-scientific people. It's for people who need this information in front of them in order to build policy and need it explained in a way that shows how it's all connected and laid out, right? That would make sense. And the technical summary would be heavier on facts and details, citation sources. So you can start getting into the really nitty gritty details of, of why this is happening and what is happening. But- mm. We were struck, or I was struck, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that after reading the policymaker summary, which is incredibly boring and poorly laid out, it's just literally paragraph after paragraph of bolded sections saying, this thing is happening, uh, here's the percentages of why, here's how much gigatons are released, um, and here's our confidence, and uh, maybe a quote or a reference to some paper. No explanation of what these things are, what they mean, how they're connected. It's just facts and numbers. Nothing is connected. There are no connections to anything. And then you open up the technical summary 
And almost immediately on page one, you're greeted with this beautiful graphic somebody made that shows how all these systems are interconnected and dependent upon each other. And I, I was like, what? Uh, I immediately stopped. And then I started going back and forth between the two things. And it seems like the tactical summary was made to explain the how and the why and the connections and go actually into depth explaining how they arrived at some of these topics, why they're important and how they're connected to other things and what impact they ultimately have on human lives as well as ecosystems and animal and plant lives that is totally absent from the policymakers. These are people who don't have background in this information, who don't know these topics, yet they're only presented with facts and figures in a way divorced from any sort of actual connection to the real world. And I, I don't, I don't want to get too tinfoily, though I do have my hat on right now, <laughs> but it almost seems like this policymaker report was created by some sort of soulless consulting company, a la McKinsey or whatever, that tried to lay out this information in the blandest, most disconnected way possible. So people's eyes glaze over. They don't see the connections. They don't see the eventual impacts of mitigating strategies that aren't just the ones laid out, but are actually dramatic enough to impact actual change are put in place. Who cares if, if X number of gigatons are released because you have no uh, idea of what that will actually do? Who cares if you know 0.001 more pH is added because you don't know what that effect has. I feel like these reports, which are already constructed to be very conservative, and they are getting more and more honest with, with the dire situation that we're in, but they, you can see it in here that it's designed to be conservative. You can feel how these things were put together in order to make things feel less bad than they are. You can see that the policymaker summary was constructed in a way to try and get rid of all the story and connections and backgrounds, which are important to understanding these and dissolve it down to facts and figures. And I can understand why a consulting company or somebody might think that people passing policy might just want facts and figures, hard things they can write treaties and whatever on. But if they don't understand the significance of these things, then what's the point? We've talked repeatedly on this show about the over-quantification of everything and how this causes bad choices to be made over and over and over again. And this policy report is 100% one of those situations. You have no reference. You have no connection to the world. You just have numbers that are pointless and are easily debated about, easily negotiated away until you've been able to create this amazing global treaty signed by hundreds of countries that nothing actually gets done or has any teeth or makes any sort of actual change, which is what we've seen over and over and over again. It's no wonder no global actual change happens on a governmental scale in regards to climate change because these treaties are constructed from summaries that are designed to have nothing in them. And it's so incredible looking at the stark difference between these two and, and what the presumed audience is. And I think it really just rips the mask off for one second about what's really going on here behind the lines. How can we address this problem without actually addressing the causes of the problem? And that's really what these reports get down to. So if we want to enact the radical change we need in order to save not just ourselves, not just human civilization, not just our, the future generations that will be following us on this earth, but I'm talking all life on this planet for the foreseeable future, we need to be honest about the situation that we are facing. We need to be honest about the very difficult steps that we need to take in order to actually enact the radical change to achieve those goals. And we need to do so 
regardless of the fact of whether or not these facts and the solutions to them are palatable to the governments of the world and to the rich and powerful who control those governments. They need to accept that they are enacting at this moment the greatest evil in the history of all humanity. We look towards the great dictators of history who committed genocide. What we are seeing is global genocide right now enacted to us, all of us living on this planet by the global ruling class, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful, the connected. They would rather see their bank accounts grow a couple more percent every year than literally save thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives over the next few years and billions of lives over the coming decades of not just humans either, but billions and trillions of lives of animals and other species because they would rather be able to buy that extra boat, because they would rather be able to take that longer trip. That is the reality we're seeing. Our future is being traded in order to pad some people's bank accounts. And we have to stop bending down to these people and letting them get away with that. And until that happens, not just in terms of, of the actual control of these governments, of these governmental organizations, but even in the information that we are presenting to them and how that information is presented, then we will see no radical change because we're not even giving them the option of looking at that. We've taken it off the table before we can even have that conversation when it should be the opposite. The only options they should have to pick from are the radical ones that enact actual change at the cost of their plus livelihood. I'm going to drive to your house and get that tinfoil hat, David. All I know is I regret spending all day Saturday reading the uh, summary for policymakers because I thought it would be easy to understand. And then it turns out it was just incredibly boring. And I wish I had read the technical summary first because it would have saved me a lot of time. But don't take our word for it. Both reports are on our website. Be sure to check them out, at least skim through and see the difference between the two because it really is quite stark. But I, I mean, there's so much we left out from this conversation here, Daniel. It's a giant report, so much information, um, an incredible resource for anyone interested in the ocean, in the cryosphere, in climate change, in our future on this planet. So we encourage you to at least take a look at them. But this episode is already running long. So uh, we've hit some of the high points. I think we've addressed some of these important things. Um, in the meantime, all those resources available on our website. And I'm sure, just as we have before this report, um, we addressed a lot of these topics and issues, and we will continue to do so throughout this show uh, because the science is constantly changing. Things are always looking worse than they were the years before, um, faster than expected, more than expected. Those are the guiding lines of climate change research today, uh, for better or for worse. So we hope you'll tune in for all of that. But in the meantime, you've got a lot to think about. A lot to think about indeed. And as mentioned, you can find those reports, the graphics, uh, all sorts of other information, resources, and uh, a full transcript of this episode, as well as every episode, on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, sharing these conversations with your family members and associates, and visiting us at patreon.com slash ashesashescast, where you can send us a little financial love, and every couple months we'll send you some stickers to show off your love for Ashes Ashes. We also have an email address. It's 
contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read them and we appreciate them. But that's not the only way to contact us. We have an amazing phone number. You can call in, leave a voicemail. We may play it on the show. The number for that is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. That is an American number. So if you're international, feel free to record something and email it to us. Or reach out on one of our other mini social networks. You can find us on Reddit, on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook at Ashes Ashes Cast. Uh, we are active on all of those, and we would love to hear from you on any of them. And if none of that floats your boat, we have an active and wonderful Discord community, a chat room of like-minded individuals, thinkers, and uh, just all-around cool people. So we hope you'll join that. You can find a link to it on our website, ashesashes.org. Click Community, and then find the Discord invite link there. We'd also like to thank our associate producer, John Fitzgerald. Thank you so much. Next week, we're back with another chat episode. There's a lot of things happening right now, so we uh, hope you'll tune in for that. But until then, I'm sure you're still listening to the Border episode anyway. So uh, tune in, uh, keep listening, and uh, keep doing good out there in the world because that's where this all will start. This is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye. We can skip the eastern boundary up upwelling systems. Okay. Well, I finally understand that, but I don't... <laughs> It's actually really interesting. I'm glad I read about him. Um, and it, it, yeah, like I asked you to fucking research it. And I'm like, you know, we don't really fucking need this. <laughs> I agree. It, it's like it's like a bullet point in the report. Skip right over it. But like, uh, it actually is. It's super interesting. Um, the like physics of it. But yes, it it doesn't need to be because we're already in an hour. Also, the report is like we don't know what it'll do. <laughs> <laughs> It just says the effects on the the EBUS are unknown, low confidence. I, I think I just liked it because, like, what you're talking about the physics of it. It's like an example of how these things work as a system, you know. Well, I didn't realize that basically the entire ocean current is all wind. I thought it was more like thermal, but like it's almost entirely just wind. Um, and mm, yeah. the friction of wind on the ocean. Um, is enough to drag water down up to 100 meters deep. And that fucking blew my mind. Like, what the fuck? That's crazy. Um, that is crazy. Anyway, the whole system is super interesting. But uh, we'll see.